Well, the countdown is on. Not the countdown to Tuesday, a different countdown. 359 days until we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation that Martin Luther began in 1517. And the reason we celebrate is because we know reform had to come. We celebrate because we know that Jesus said to his disciples, Freely you have received, now freely give. We celebrate because we know the gospel at that time had been locked up and locked away. And if you wanted the life-giving words of the gospel, you were told you had to pay for them with your money and with lots and lots of good deeds and hard work. So we celebrate that Martin Luther discovered Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That he discovered that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. That he discovered that the righteousness that we need to be in a relationship with God does not and cannot come from us. It's from Christ who gives it to us freely. Is that the end of the story? That great reformation. Is that the one and only? Have the last 499 years just been years where the church got it all right? Where the church sees and understands and applies the truth of the Word of God as we are supposed to see it and understand it and apply it? Or do we need reformation today? And if so, where is that reformation needed? And who should the reformers be? Our passage this morning challenges us, I pray, to think through continuing reformation in the church. Because as the church, we need to always be praying. And asking the Lord to open our eyes to see and our our minds to understand where reform needs to happen. Reform in our lives, reform in our practices, and reform in our message. So I hope you'll show us that this morning as we come once again to Deuteronomy chapter 29. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to that chapter. If not, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Deuteronomy chapter 29, and when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives, and the aliens living in your camps, who chop your wood and carry your water. You're standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as His people 
that you may be that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I am making this covenant with this oath not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God but also with those who are not here today. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word inspired by you. You breathed it into the heart and the mind and through the pen of those who have recorded it for us. And so we thank you for it and we know that it is truth. So Father, we pray that you will take this truth that you have given to us and that you would change our lives with it. And Father, once our lives are changed by your truth, we pray that you would help us change the world with it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. And I'll ask you to look once again in verse number 10. The people on the plains of Moab gathered in the presence of the Lord. And, and look at the list there. Your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel. Children, wives, aliens living in the camp who chop wood and carry water, all standing in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord God. In his commentary, J.G. McConville says that this verse, verse 10 that we've just read, is the most inclusive list of the covenant community that appears anywhere in the New Testament. And we see who it includes. Those of highest rank, as well as those who chop wood and carry water. It includes men and women and children. It includes citizens of Israel, and it includes internationals living among them. And all of these people are standing together on the plains of Moab in the presence of the Lord. And unless my mind has wrongly defined plain, a plain is level ground. So that one person is not higher than the other. They are all on level ground before the Lord. So if we look at what Scripture is is showing us here, then you and I have to conclude that God's heart is for all people. And since according to verse 10, they're standing here in order to enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord, then you and I must conclude that God's will is that his covenant family be made up of all kinds of people. And since they are together on a plain, level ground, we must conclude that all people stand levelly, equally, in their need of the Lord. Now look at verse 14. Moses says he's making the covenant not just with those who are present, but those who are not present. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Moses is here referring to those generations who are going to to, to come in the future who are yet unborn. And so, we must conclude that God intends that his family always, for all time, be made up of all kinds of people who stand in equal need of his grace. God must want the world to know that his family is not a monochromatic composition, one color. God's family is a mosaic. 
lots of colors, lots of shapes. Unfortunately, the people who are gathered on the plains of Moab share with those of us seated here in these pews this morning this common struggle. And the struggle is between God's will and our will, right? Who will win in the end? And the reason we struggle so often with obedience is because we lack the faith and we lack the creativity and we lack the imagination to see the same beauty that God sees, that God knows will be created when His people obey. There'll be beauty. Beauty in our private lives and beauty in our community. A mosaic of people was beyond the imagination of the people of Israel. And so the nation of Israel did not obey the Lord in this. They were not a mosaic. In fact, they came, became just the opposite. They became a monochromatic composition. They were exclusive instead of inclusive people. And the longer they existed as a nation, the more exclusive they became until eventually their exclusiveness reached this apex. I want to read from you, read to you from a book entitled United by Faith. Religious leaders defined their congregation by who was excluded from membership. There were long lists of those who could not meet the definition. Such lists included women, Samaritans, Gentiles, individuals with criminal records, anyone who was disabled or sick, tax collectors, and those considered sinners. Also, those with certain occupations were not counted worthy. Camel drivers, sailors, herdsmen, weavers, tailors, barbers, butchers, physicians, business people, and many others. They only qualified, the only people who were qualified were healthy males of pure Hebrew ancestry who held respectable jobs and followed all the laws of the religion. This exclusive view also required that they avoid contact with those not considered worthy. That's the way it was. And yet the plains of Moab shout, This is wrong! This is not the way God intended it to be. And so what was needed? Reformation, right? And who was the reformer? You know, the radical reforming Jesus. Please ignore the picture behind me. (laughs) He looks neither like a radical nor a reformer in that picture, and yet Jesus was both. And I imagine that the religious leaders must have seen Jesus like a radical youth. And Jesus stood back from their monochromatic composition before him. And the radical Jesus pulls out a paint gun. And he begins to shoot paintballs at their composition. So that it begins to take on different colors. And he shoots in different patterns so it takes on different shape. And the religious leaders would say, no, no stop what are you doing you're ruining our beautiful monochromatic creation 
But Jesus would not stop, would he? Because that's not the way it was supposed to be. So Jesus kept taking shots. I'm going to look at three of the shots that he took. One of the shots was the disciples he chose. Among those disciples was Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector, which meant that Matthew was in the employ of the Roman government. And Matthew's job was really to oppress God's people by collecting taxes for them. The Roman government said, you, have, you must collect X amount of taxes and any other amount that you can extort from people above and beyond that, well, that's yours to keep. So you can imagine how hated Matthew was as an infidel and a collaborator with the enemy of God's people. But Jesus chose Matthew as a disciple. And each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who record this story, include the same detail. That Matthew was sitting at his tax-collecting booth when Jesus came to him and said, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus. While he was sitting at his tax-collecting booth, while he was in the midst of his despicable work, Jesus called him and Matthew followed. Just that simply. Another disciple in the group was Simon. And Simon is perhaps the most obscure of the 12 apostles, except for one detail that always appears when Simon is mentioned. Simon is called Simon the Zealot. That means that Simon was was zealous. He was radical for the nation of Israel. He was militant for the nation of Israel. He was violent for the cause of Israel. Of Israel. He was a freedom fighter. Simon could not hate anything more than the Roman Empire and those who collaborated with them. And you wonder if Simon was not perhaps the most zealous of all the freedom fighters because he is Simon the Zealot. Oh, you know Simon? Oh, yeah, Simon the Zealot. I know Simon the Zealot. Now, please imagine what the first meeting must have been like between Matthew, the tax collector, and and Simon, the zealot. Maybe Jesus was doing the introductions. Simon, the zealot. (laughs) Now, Liz, I'd like you to meet Matthew, the tax collector. Now, I want you two to greet each other with a holy kiss. This small group of men, those very closest to Jesus, the ones through whom the gospel would be spread and the church would be established was not a monochromatic, homogeneous group. And this is by the intentional plan of God. Because Luke tells us, he writes in chapter 6, that once Jesus went to the mountain to pray, and it says that Jesus prayed all night long. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named Apostles, among them Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. They were disciples, apostles, by the will and the plan of God. How big and how powerful must the gospel be if it's big enough and powerful enough to change all kinds of people and make peace between them? Let's look at a second shot that Jesus took. We'll move from the group of disciples to 
to Jesus' table. Not unlike our day and Jesus' day, you invited people to eat with you that you approved of. People that you believe were worthy of your social status. Well, the religious leaders of Jesus' day intentionally used their table to exclude. And they used their table to model behavior that they intended for all of the nation of Israel to follow. And you heard the list that I read earlier. You would never find at the table of a Pharisee a a woman or a Samaritan or an ex-con or a disabled person or any of the others in that list. And yet the plains of Moab shout, this is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And so along comes reforming Jesus. And you know where this story is going because we've talked about it so many times in the past. Jesus also used his table to model behavior. Only Jesus' behavior was right and good and well-pleasing and in accordance with the, the will of the Lord. Let's go back to the call of Matthew. Jesus sees Matthew, tax collector booth, calls Matthew. Matthew follows and the next verse tells us this. Immediately, Jesus is in Matthew's home at his table. And many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because Jesus used his table to include, to welcome, and not to exclude. And to eat at the table of Jesus was the exact same thing as to eat at the table of God. Can you imagine? We cannot begin to conceive how these tax collectors and sinners felt as they ate with Jesus. To eat with him said, you matter to me. You have value to me. You have dignity. To eat at the table of Jesus communicated, you don't need to be ashamed because I'm not ashamed of you. To eat at the table of Jesus meant having the humiliation removed of never being invited to eat with the religious leaders. And while Jesus was reclining at the table with them, he makes no attempt to avoid physical contact with those with whom he is eating because the family of God It's for all kinds of people because the gospel is big and powerful. And just like on the plains of Moab, when all kinds of people were standing side by side and shoulder to shoulder in the presence of the Lord, all are invited to enter into the covenant. All invited to say, you are my God, I belong to you. The third shot Jesus takes. We move from the table to the temple. And just as they used their table to exclude, so the religious leaders used the temple to exclude as well. And long was the list of those who were not allowed in the temple to worship the Lord. And so once again, along comes the radical reforming Jesus. And he says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 11. 
actions and words spoken by Jesus just hours before his death. And so we've got to see in some way that what he does and says here is a culmination of his three years of preaching and teaching. Mark writes that Jesus entered into the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. A house of prayer for all nations. I don't hear any exclusiveness in Jesus' words, all nations. When Matthew tells the story, he immediately follows with this verse. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. Isn't that just the greatest? People who for all their lives have been excluded from the temple. Jesus welcomes them. And he heals them because Jesus is the radical reformer. And so with these three shots, Jesus destroyed the monochromatic masterpiece that the religious of Israel had produced. And he rescued the heart of God. And he rescued the will of God from religious people who did not get it and who misrepresented both. The love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God are for all kinds of people. And all kinds of people are to be included in the covenant community of God. I am not preaching universalism here. Oh, everyone's saved. Everyone's in God's family. On the plains of Moab, we read it this morning. The people entered into the covenant of God by oath and by promise. Promising that he would be their God only and they would be his people and promising a life of obedience. In the New Testament, we enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus called Matthew, and Matthew got up, He left his old life and he left his old work behind and he followed Jesus. So we must respond to the call of the gospel. We must admit that we're sinners. We must say, Lord, I have no hope except in Christ. We too have to repent of our sins and we too have to leave our old life of sin and death behind in the tax collecting booth. And we've got to get up and follow Jesus. And then we, like Jesus, become radical reformers. And we begin to pray on a daily basis, Lord, show me where reform needs to take place in my life. Where does the Reformation need to come? Lord, show us in our church, where is it that Reformation needs to come? In the things we do and in the messages we speak. Because when I look around, now here comes the uncomfortable part, I'll just tell you up front. When I look around, I don't see the church as a mosaic. I see the church as a monochromatic composition. And we comfort ourselves by saying, Craig, there are 
all kinds of churches, with all kinds of people, all around the world. Our job here is done. Is it? Is it God's will that His church today be monochromatic pockets of believers around the world? The early church was a mosaic. All around the Roman Empire gathered people to worship. The Hebrews and the Greeks worshiping together. Was there conflict? Absolutely. Between the Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews. But guess what? The gospel triumphed. They didn't divide over it. They stayed together. They worked it out so that the Hebrew widows and the Greek widows, they were all beautifully cared for. In Philippi, the rich businesswoman Lydia opened her home as a place of worship for the very first church ever in Europe. And when the slave girl from Philippi showed up at Lydia's house for worship, Lydia didn't go to the door and say, oh, slave girl, I I recognize you as a sister in Christ, but your kind worship five blocks over. Have a good day. When the crusty, old Roman soldier, jailkeeper from Philippi showed up with his family at Lydia's house for worship, she didn't open the door and say, oh, Philippian jailer, I recognize you as a brother in Christ, but your kind they worship 10 blocks over. No. They worshiped together. And so I believe that a great reformation that needs to happen in the church today is that all kinds of people from all kinds of places and all different colors need to mix it up. Because I have no doubt that we here love the gospel. I know we love the gospel. I know we believe the gospel. And we know that it's for all kinds of people. The question is, are we willing to do the hard work to provide a visual demonstration of the bigness and the power of the gospel by becoming a mosaic church? Are we willing to make the commitments required and the sacrifices required? Because let me tell you, Reformation always requires both commitment and sacrifice. And if you don't believe it, just Ask Jesus. Earlier I quoted from United by Faith. Now I want to quote from the book by the same author written before it called Divided by Faith. This is the last paragraph in that book. Trying to overcome racial divisions in America has been very difficult in the past. And we should not expect things to get much easier in the very near future. At the same time, The choices and actions that people make to deal with racial divisions do matter and can make a difference. Good intentions are not enough. May I repeat that? Good intentions are not enough. But educated, sacrificial, realistic efforts made in faith across racial lines can help us together move toward a more just, equitable, and peaceful society And that is a purpose well worth striving toward. 
Good intentions are not enough. Sacrifice is required. Another quick story. Thursday, I went to Presbyterian Hilton Head. I'm chairman of the church planning committee for Presbyterian, so I asked one of our church planters in Orangeburg to please give us a report. And this church planter is attempting to plant a multi-ethnic church in Orangeburg, and he's having a really difficult time of it. And in his report, he said to us that before he attempted this church plant, the experts told him, experts in planting this kind of church, they told him expect to spend 10 years and $1 million to make it happen. He didn't believe them then, but he believes them now. Because such is the difficulty of getting monochromatic Christians to give up personal preferences in order to worship together. And here's why I believe it's difficult. I know I'm going on a long time, but get over it. It's because we're looking at it the wrong way. And here's the principle we know is true. Whatever God ordains, Satan opposes, right? And so what God has ordained is mosaic. Now, has God ordained that to us as a punishment? No. He's ordained it as a blessing. So that we get to live together among all kinds of variety. People with all different kind of outlooks and perspectives and gifts and challenges and quirks and idiosyncrasies. Let me ask you this. If I put a bowl of unsalted, unbuttered white rice in front of you and said to you, this is all you get to eat for the rest of your life. Most people would feel as if I had cursed them, not blessed them. But if I put the bowl of rice in front of you, add a little garlic, maybe a little saffron, some curry powder, maybe some onions, nice, big, fat, juicy pieces of kielbasa, maybe throw in some tomato, all the variety of spices and all the ingredients would make you feel like Craig, you have blessed me. And if I said to you, oh, this is just lunch. Wait till you see what I've got planned for dinner. And after dinner, wait till you see what I've got planned for breakfast tomorrow. You would feel as if I had blessed you. So why is it that we believe that an unsalted white rice church body is a blessing? And that a mosaic church is a curse? No, Mosaic is a blessing of God, and so reformation must come. The church should not continue to exist in isolated, monochromatic expressions. Because what does that communicate about the gospel? That we can't get along? That we don't want to get along? Or that our personal preferences are more important than the kingdom of God? I'm telling you, in order to become... A mosaic church, I guarantee you're not going to get everything you want. You're not going to get the kind of music you want. But newsflash, let me just tell you. The people of the world are not clamoring for white Presbyterian music. (laughs) You may not get exactly the kind of highbrow preaching 
you want. That might exclude some people. You might not get the setting for worship that you want. But can we give up those preferences for the sake of creating a mosaic? I see great opportunity for the church and the changes that are taking place in our country right now. Opportunities to become mosaic. This is a couple of weeks ago, October 13th. The Atlantic posted this as a video on their website. And it was entitled, We've Reached the End of White Christian America. And this is the paragraph that accompanied the video. The United States is no longer a majority white Christian country. And that's already beginning to have profound social and political implications. At 45% of the population, white Christians are a shrinking demographic. And the backlash from many groups, for many members of the group against the increasing diversification of America has been swift and bitter. People fight like that when they are people fight like that when they are losing a sense of place, a sense of belonging, and a sense of country that they understand and love, says Robert Jones, the author of The End of White Christian America. In this animated interview, How do they re-engage in public life when they can't be the majority? Isn't that a great question for us? How do they re-engage when they can't be the majority? See, a lot of people see this statistic as a reason to despair. I'm telling you, we ought to see it as a great opportunity. If we cannot be the majority, if we cannot be homogeneous, we might just then have to become a house of prayer for all nations. If losing our majority makes us work harder to engage the culture with the gospel, if it makes us learn to live among and work among and invite into our homes all kinds of people from all kinds of places, then guess what? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. If we regain the majority through the power of the gospel then perhaps we will be better stewards of that privilege than we've been in the past. And if we are never again, ever, the favored majority in this country, then all we have to do is look to church history and know that when the church is not the favored majority, when Christians are being burned as torches to light Nero's garden parties, and when they're being taken to the Colosseum and tossed to the lions, the church exploded. It spread like wildfire in a pagan culture that noted this. Those gospel preachers are turning the world upside down because the grace of God is for all kinds of people. And that is the message of the plains of Moab and that that is the message of the cross of Christ. And so we here at Redeemer need to pray for reformation so that that's the message of our church today, so that visibly demonstrated here in this place is a mosaic of the people that God has created in His image. And let's not leave the Reformation for someone else. Let's you and I be the Reformers. 
Will you stand? I want to finish by reading. You've heard way too many of my words. Ephesians chapter 2. This is to you and to me. Remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Galatians 3, For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you here now on level ground, shoulder to shoulder, as the people of Israel stood before you on the plains of Moab, and we are all, Lord, equally in need of you equally in need of your love and your grace and your mercy and your compassion and your forgiveness. And Father, we thank you that you have met this great need we have through the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life and peace and hope, and through whom, Lord, we, as your people, are to love this world for Jesus' sake. And so I pray for us, our church, I pray for the church around the world, Lord, that we would be a reflection of your heart. Lord, in those places where the community is diverse, Lord, may the church within that place reflect the diversity of that community. May people look in the church and be amazed how the highest people and the lowest people, all kinds of people of all kinds of color from all kinds of places can worship together in love and unity and harmony and peace. What a testimony it would be, Lord, of the gospel and your love. So I pray, Lord, that it may be true among us pray that you will show us what we need to do to to become this. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the desire to make the commitment and the sacrifices required. Father, I pray that you would allow us to set aside our personal preferences 
in order for this bigger, more beautiful thing that you can do in us and among us. So we commit ourselves to you now, powerful, reforming God, asking that you would bring reformation to us and through us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.